G'day citizens of the people's game. Today we have another special edition of Footy Book Club for you. Well, the 2017 Premiership holds a special place in my heart and in the hearts of all Richmond fans. The 2016 Western Bulldogs Premiership is considered by many as the most romantic and pure football story of the modern AFL era. A Wink from the Universe is a new book by esteemed author, journalist and storyteller Martin Flanagan, which takes us behind the scenes of this magical football fairy tale. The other half of this podcast, Jack Bannister, caught up with Martin Flanagan in the lead up to the new season to discuss how A Wink from the Universe came to be, where the Dogs' 2016 triumph ranks amongst other fairy tale funnels, and the importance and power of storytelling in general. So without further ado, here's Jack and Flanners talking about A Wink from the Universe. Martin Flanagan, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so, this story of the Bulldogs, why were you so drawn to this? It's the happiest um, story, AFL story, that I've ever witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous happiest one for me was Essendon in 93. Yep. I thought that was the greatest, um, that grand final with with, with Wanganen winning the Brownlow, Michael Long dominating the grand final. Mm-hmm. Um Polly Farmer and Barry Cable coming across to mm-hmm. hand out the medals. Um, Essendon having been rebuilt with this Aboriginal component. Sheedy being at the forefront of opening mm-hmm. the game to Aboriginal Australia. That was one of the happiest days of my life. Um, but this was sort of phenomenal in that, um, to quote uh, Dr Seuss, this was the winningest to win in that... Um, it created the great, greatest mass happiness mm-hmm. and it created a happiness that went beyond the Bulldogs and I reckon beyond the AFL. It was, um, there was something magic and special about it and, um, I, uh, you know, as I say in the book, I wasn't going to do it. Um, I met Beveridge to tell him I couldn't do it um, and he, um, I told him all the reasons I couldn't do it and then he said, but it's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> it was like a scene out of a Steven Spielberg movie, The Shining Object, that was the story appeared mm. between us. And um, so I ended up doing it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got this uh, African-American friend called uh, Gilroy Griffin III. He lives in L.A. He's a huge AFL fan. And um, I said to him recently, um, when I die, when I come back, I want to come back as a New Orleans jazz man. And he said, why? And I said, because they make a happy sound. And... This story is a happy story, and it's mm. just a real pleasure to write a happy book, and one that I believe will give people happiness in ten years, and fifteen years, and twenty years. Mm. So even after I'm dead, this book will give people happiness, and that that's that's a good thing to do. Mm. So you've written about a few grand finals. You wrote a book about 1970, yeah, and it's interesting that 93 is now 25 years ago. But is it is what makes a great grand final in your eyes? just the, the happiness it brings, or are there other elements? Oh, no, that's a great grand final. <clears throat> it absolutely, you get two equal forces meeting and they create between them a third force. Mm-hmm. And and the magnitude of that third force is what is, you know, that, that determines the size of the characters in our minds after the mm-hmm. game. So 
uh, a great grand final, 89. You know, that's the Viking epic of grand finals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ablett, Ablett Dipper Domenico, Brereton, you know, huge names come out of that game. Mm. And we had so many poor grand finals. And, uh, you know, the three that Hawthorne won, I don't, I don't want to be disparaging towards Hawthorne or their supporters, but I didn't think, I didn't think any of them. Were, were particularly interesting to me. They were just uh, a very good, very well coached team with a sort of a core of great players that just executed a game plan. And you know, the, the, that the, the West Coast final was over. I thought halfway through the first mm. quarter. Um, that you know, Australian football can't afford to have grand finals like that. So a great grand final, yeah. Both teams have got to be in it, and um, both teams have to play well. And both teams have to have great performances, mm. and um, and and the Bulldogs um, grand final with, against the Swans had that. I, I think Buddy's performance in that game was just epic, given that he was injured. I mean, he yeah. very nearly won it for him. He did, yeah. Mm. And so you talk about the characters of the, the main thing that makes a great grand final. So you've sat down with the majority, not of, just the characters, the quality of the sport, and the quality of the sport. Yeah. So you sat down with every player from the Bulldogs and you spoke to them all and you profiled them all. Yeah. In terms of gathering that information, how long did that process take? Um, well, the whole thing was... Um, the whole thing... We started late because the Bulldogs mm. couldn't decide on what they wanted. They, they, I didn't know, but they were entertaining the idea of another book, um, um, which Gideon Haig was going to write, uh, had been approached to write. And it, had I known that, I would have definitely withdrawn because... I've got huge respect for Gideon Haig. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a great sports writer. Um, but they were also talking about a film and, you know, this thing was... And, and it was just going on and on and on and I hadn't said I would do it. I just, every time I went to say I wouldn't do it, I got I got distracted by them, by Dennis Bicer, the, the head of communications. But um, so when we finally started, we were late. And that that's when I said to Beveridge, you know, I'm never going to get this done by... I knew they'd want it for Christmas 2017. They originally wanted it for the start of the finals in 2017. And I said, I just, it's just not possible. So we started late. But the most significant thing, really, was that Beveridge wanted me to do it. So he, he was fantastic. He, he was there for me every time I needed him. Because mm-hmm. if you're doing a book like this, you've got to have someone inside, mm-hmm. inside who answers the phone. So he always got back to me. Bob was on side, but I couldn't go to him very often because he was writing his own book and it just wasn't fair to him. But but between them, they got the players on side. And that was really important that the players all entered it in good spirit and they were all giving and they all did their best to to assist me with the sorts of inquiries I was making because I, I wasn't after gossip, um, but I did want to try and understand how they did it, how they did what they did. Yeah. So you got all this material and you've gathered interviews with fans and all the stuff you have with Bevo and yeah. all the mash notes. Uh, did you always envisage that it would go in the structure that it did, where it starts with the history and then flows through the season sort of round by round? It, it is unique. I've written 18 books and that one is unique because it's the first time I've ever had a plan for a book because I've always believed the... Um, the old saying I, I, I read that a sculptor made and the sculptor said the shape is not the shape you impose on the stone the shape is the shape you find in working the stone mm. 
and that's how I've always I've always worked on that principle. With this book, because we started late, um, I had to make a plan for it before I knew what the story was, and I've never ever done that before. But I had to do that with this, and um, and so so yeah, I had the plan before I had the story. So mm. first time I've ever done it that way. Yeah, and you've obviously you wrote a book with the dogs in '93. Yeah, so. Two questions, really. How much did that help you? And then how much did the place changed in 25 years? Um, it, it obviously, it helped me a lot because when I wrote my first book on the dogs, when I went out there, um, that was 1993, um, I, I was really shocked by how quiet the place was. Uh, it was about as far removed from the stereotype of what a footy club is, as, as you could imagine. Um, you know, it was an introverted place, a, a stoic place. And um, they're a combination of factors which had created that culture within the club. But, you know, there weren't... You didn't sit out there and think, oh, what a personality, oh, what a personality. No, there was, they, were an, they were an introverted group mm-hmm. uh, and an introverted club. And that was the year Wheeler got them to jump out of the aeroplane over Port Phillip Bay to try and bring them out of themselves. And, um, and there was no history up around the walls. There was this curious absence of story out there. And I that was when I started reading every book I could find on the western suburbs of Melbourne. And I read Footscray, but I also came across this novel, Bunch of Red Bags by William Dick, which is a very good book. It's a working class novel about growing up in Footscray in the 50s and 60s. And, um, and that was how I started to get my feel for the history and culture of the club. And um, and so that history and culture, that was the same when I went out there. I mean, they've been through more traumas and they changed their name from Footscray to the Western Bulldogs, but they're still, they're still the same club and, and more importantly, they're still in the same place. And, um, you know, their story stretches into that bit of land out there back to the 1870s. I mean, it's yeah. a very old story and it intertwines with the history of the place in so many ways. So that hadn't changed. The president hadn't changed. Um, but what had changed, the most obvious thing to me which had changed, I mean, it was a hard game when I was out there in 93. I remember, I think every player but one had surgery at the end of 93. Um, but I think the game had got harder, harder physically, harder mentally, harder spiritually. You know, these young men, it's it's this ultra-competitive, over-analysed human laboratory. And um, at the end of the day, it's only a game. And uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's an incidence of depression in AFL footy because these young men are asked to give so much and there's no guarantee of them getting anything back beyond a certain amount of money. So... So you talked about the place being really introverted and yep. you talk about now they have this group called the Surrealists. Yeah. And I, f- I mean, it struck me that a lot of their players were, I think, are quite politically aware, which comes across in the book. Two questions again. Is that different from other clubs? And how did you tap into those personalities when you were putting this together? Um, you, your previous question was, what was the difference? The big difference, another big difference, the young men of 2016 were much more emotionally articulate fellows. Um, that's not to say that blokes I met in 93 were smart men or 
emotionally attuned men, but there's a scene on grand final day where two two old bulldogs, Steve McPherson and Steve Wallace, meet as they're going into the grand final. And they were both great bulldogs players, you know, five or six hundred games between them. And um, they've both had sons who've both... Mitch Wallace, who was in the team, but broke his leg terribly badly and missed the grand final. And um, Steve's son, whose name I think is Darcy, who tried out at the Dogs but hadn't got a chance and had ended up at, at Gold Coast. And uh, they just meet outside the ground and one, and I think Steve McPherson says to Steve Wallace with a grin, I've been thinking about you. And Steve Wallace says with a grin, and I've been thinking about you. And that's as much as they say. And But the message has been delivered, you know. They understand one another as fathers. That's the old Footscray way. Whereas the young men of this team, someone like Easton Wood, he's a... He's an emotional, emotionally intelligent young man who believes emotional honesty is um, a natural ingredient of being a healthy male. Uh, he's a different sort of young man, um, and yeah, they were, they were, they were articulate, and some of them are very socially aware. Like Jordan Ruffhead, I mean, he's got strong social views. Um, and, I, you know, I suppose having Bob around also, I mean, you can't underestimate the effect he had. I mean, he's a very, you know, he's a very astute bloke and um, he's smart politically and he's smart with people and his influence in that club. I mean, what, I've been out there a few times with him. My God, he's, it's like being with Sir Lancelot in Camelot when you're out there with Bob. <laughs> um, but... but um, yeah, so that yeah, that 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 they were they were an articulate, you know. I mean, there was there were some very bright young guys among them. Like Pickens got a master's degree, Matthew Boyd's got a master's degree, Tom Boyd got an ATAR score in his mid nineties. I think Libba got a very high ATAR score. Mm. So there's some pretty smart. There were some pretty smart boys, and then you get, I I, th- I think the character that whose role in it all can never be underestimated is Marcus Pontempelli because. You've got a club, you've got a great captain in Bob, a club captain in Bob, you've got a great team captain in Easton Wood, you've got a team with fantastic elders like Matthew Boyd and Dale Morris and Jordan Ruffhead, but the young champion in the club, he buys in totally into this culture. And that, that that's sort of the plug in the bath because there's a few in between, the ones Bob calls the surrealists, who could have gone in a number of directions, but, but they there's a circle around them made up by the young and the old and that heads them all in one direction. So when you sit across a table from the Bond, what, yeah. what, is, what is he like? How, does, how do you experience that? He's just a really lovely young man. I mean, he's, he's got a really eager, inquiring mind and um, he, got into the, he got into the book and um, he'd come over here to my house and he'd sit in my writing room and I remember when... Uh, I read him a passage um, on the on the preliminary final, and at the end of it, he had this look of excitement in his face, and he said, "That gave me a rush of memories." And that's one of the things I want the book to do is um, I want people to read in ten, fifteen, twenty years time, and when they do, I want that, that to give them all the memories of that time. I want them all to come rushing back. I want it to be like a memory stick. Mm. Yeah. But he's. Um, Hey, well, when I first met him out at the club, um, that was sort of 
maybe two months after the grand final, and we were sitting in the club cafe, old people were coming up and touching him, like they used to do with medieval monarchs. Um, and, and there was a couple on the other side, and they'd send this little girl across to be photographed with him, and the, the father didn't come out, so they send it again, and then finally this these two women, maybe one in the 40s and one in the 70s, a, a mother and a grandmother, and they approach with this baby and ask him to hold the baby, and then they take this photo of Bont, you know, good-naturedly holding this baby towards their cameras, and, and when they went, he said, I can't work out how winning football games, what fo- winning football games has got to do with holding babies. Uh, uh. And so you spoke about the influence of Bob on the playing group. Yeah. but And you talk a lot about emotional intelligence. Yeah. How much did Beveridge shape the players? And we know that, and it's mentioned in the book, that he scored off the charts when they tested him yeah. with the emo- emotional intelligence test before they hired him. Beveridge is huge. Beveridge's contribution is just huge. As I said, the major thing he does is he somehow or other inoculates that team against the club culture. The club culture, to quote quote the club historian, Ace, Arthur, no one expected us to win in 2016, not even us. Mm. And this was a club which virtually had no memory of success at all. It 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 had a culture of getting close, but it had no memory of winning and... You know, if you'd taken a poll around Australia of people who thought they were going to win that flag, hardly anyone really believed they would. And Beveridge has gone in and he has believed they can win it. And everything he does works towards that end. And and given that they took two really big demoralising losses in the course of that year, one against GWS and one against Geelong, there's a great loneliness to what he does because he never, ever surrenders his belief that they can win it. And he is always looking at it from that perspective. And um, and and he's, he's this very unusual man who, as I say in the book, he's probably best understood by his presence. Um, he, you feel safe around him. Men and women feel safe around him. And all the players... Um, would tell told me that you know they believed he cared for them, not they believed Bob cared for them. Uh, but at the same time, Beveridge can be witheringly detached in his view of a footballer. He expects almost perfection of them, um, but at the same time, they never doubt he cared for them. So there's there's a balance in there that a really rare and unusual balance, and he had it. And you've written about other coaches, and you've spent a lot of time with Kevin Sheedy, and you wrote Ron Barassi is a prime character in the book you did about the 70 grand yeah. final. How do you compare those figures, who are great figures in the history of Australian rules, with Luke Beveridge, not just in, well, in their mannerisms as much as anything in their methods? Um, I think coaches are really interesting people. I think um, that, that they've got to be capable of a, of a, of a real inner core honesty. Um, that, that, that at a certain point, you know, when they tell you the truth of of your performance or what you're doing or what you're not doing, there's a sense in which it's like God talking to you, you know, that like it's it you don't doubt the veracity of what they're saying. And Barassi had a luminous sort of inner honesty about him. Um Sheedy's um a complete uh one off and a complete case apart, but he's also capable of great honesty. 
um, and beverages too. So I think that um, beverage says in the book, you know, uh, every every player has got to want to play for his coach. Um, that's true, uh, and and certainly the Bulldogs wanted to play for beverage. Um, and and you know, curiously enough, that's how I ended up writing the book. I I didn't want to write the book. Um, and five minutes after meeting Beveridge, I did want to write the book. He made me want to do something I didn't want to do. That's why it's such a, a pivotal moment in the book because he makes the dogs want to do something they don't want to do in the sense that they don't believe they can do it, but he makes them want to do it. And then by the time they got to the grand final, they were in no doubt they were going to win it. They, you know. So his achievement's amazing. As David Parkin says... To win that premiership, they beat four better sides, three of them on their home grounds. And no one's done that before. And 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 for me, it's a much more marvellous uh, result than Richmond's because Richmond win with the All-Australian captain at full-back, a common medalist at full-forward, two Brownlow medalists in between. The dogs have got a bloke who didn't get a single game at Geelong in three years at full back. They haven't got a full forward. They changed their rucks at full forward, which is what they used to do in country footy in Tassie when I was a kid. At centre half forward, they got a 19-year-old kid playing his 11th game who has never played in the forward line until six weeks earlier. And and their best midfielder is a 20-year-old kid. Uh, and their ruckman, who's a converted full back, doesn't know that he's playing until 10am on the morning of the grand final. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's funny, I've been reading a book by Tom Verducci about the Cubs and I've just finished a bit last night where he starts talking about Godwinks and all the Godwinks that the Cubs had on their run to the finals, which I thought was a really interesting parallel with what you've written. But um, going through what you said, you very much consider this a miracle somewhat. Well, it's it's without precedent. I, there's nothing. There's been nothing like it in my 35 years of covering AFL footy um, I, I was 11 when St Kilda won in 66. I remember that. Um, I remember how big it was and how the enormous excitement which followed it. So I can't really compare it to that. But in the in this era, um, yeah, I mean, he came... I mean, Peter, you know, Peter Schwab said, uh, he's someone whose opinions on footy I really respect. He said, who's come from further back? Who's brought a team from further back? And Beveridge bought the dogs. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not like winning one at Hawthorne. When, when you front up at Hawthorne, you've got a whole machine that's practised in the art of, of winning and, and, and creating winning conditions. Um, he went to a club that didn't have any of that. And, um, and, and he, never, he never flinched, um, you know, over the course of two years. He just, he took them ever upwards. And... Um, and uh, by the time they got to that grand final, as I said a minute ago, they, did, they were in no doubt they were going to lose, not that they were going to win. So out of the four finals, because yep. this is really, I, I think this is where the book gets, I think it picks up energy towards the end. Do you have a, a preferred game of the four or do you like them all equally? Oh, I love them all. <laughs> um, um, I said to Beva about the book, I said, mate, the last half of it is designed like a like a ski ramp it just gets faster and mm-hmm. faster and aims to flick the reader off into a sense of wonderment at the end and he liked that um, oh gee whiz I mean I, I could talk about all those games but I suppose I mean the, the preliminary final against GWS that is just 
a magnificent game of football. And, mm. you know, I mean, it's got so much in it. It's, it's, it's you know, major injuries to a major player on each side. Um, it's got all these historical ironies, like um, Callum Ward would have been the captain of the Dogs had he not gone to GWS. He gets knocked out. Um, uh, Ryan Griffin was the captain of the Dogs when he walked out precipitating the crisis of October 2014. And then in what Bob Murphy reckons was the play of the finals, when the Dogs brought the ball Mm. from full back with 11 intersections and GWS don't touch it once, uh, and it ends up after Dalhouse is brought down by Patful and Dalhouse gets away the handball of hope and suddenly the whole game is about Ryan Griffin, brackets the former Bulldogs captain, and Clay Smith, the player with the greatest personal drama in the game, having lost a friend days earlier in Darwin, and they go for the ball and it's all down to that. And Clay Smith defeats... Um, defeats um, Ryan Griffin and, and off the field they're mates um, so it was full of amazing moments like that and um, I love Bonte's goal 15 minutes into the final quarter um, you know the game the, the players are exhausted the, the ball's trapped GWS have got it trapped in the right side of the ground going their way and um, again Ryan Griffin again uh, the captain he gets a hand pass intercepted by Matthew Boyd, who I thought had a great year, and he he reads the hand he reads the ball out of Ryan Griffin's hand, and you, you wondered is that because he played with him so often that he knew what he was going to do? He gets the ball, I think, to Jack McRae. Jack McRae has a great final series. Gets it to Dunkley, who's enormous in that year. Um, the big fella, the big ruckman. Mummy, he gets hold of Dunkley and starts swinging him in the way that he knocked Kurt Tippett senseless two weeks earlier. Dunkley says he doesn't have time to be scared, but after about 180 degrees, he gets off a handball. Boyd has galloped up. The handball misses him. He puts his foot out. He just deflects it, and JJ gets it. And JJ makes his run. Beats one, beats two. And... Bonte sees him coming and breaks to the breaks to the dot to the right the right fourth flank for the dogs, and it's a really hard kick. It's the kick Pickin does to kick his first goal in the final quarter of the grand final, where you're going flat out, full steam ahead, and you're a right footer, and you've got to kick the ball at about 15 or 20 degrees off to the right. That's a really hard kick, and he does it. He gets it, and the ball's bouncing wide, and Bonte smacks it. And I think I say in the book, the ball does it as it's told, as it does with great players. And Bonte changes direction. Patful misses him. Um, the captain uh, the captain of GWS, number one, the centre-half back, he's coming in. Bonte's just got enough time, gets on his left, and his finish is perfect. <coughs> and uh, the dogs are ahead by one point, mm. halfway through the last quarter of a, of a, of a preliminary final. That's, that's exciting. If you don't love that, if you can't get excited about that, then... You're at the wrong game. 
And the other moment, of course, was the one the week before between Bont and Hodge oh. at the MCG, which happened right below where I was sitting. Oh. But when you when you saw that, and I'm assuming you saw it live, no, I didn't. You didn't. But no. what did you what did you think when you first saw that moment? I absolutely thought the you know this young guy's a champion. This, mm. this young guy is a superstar. This is the moment when a young player declares to the whole country, "I've arrived. I'm someone in this game." You know, I thought it was a huge moment. And that was why I was so shocked when I mentioned it to Beveridge. And Beveridge said, um, what was good about that play was Ruffy's kick. And I said, what? <laughs> and I had to go back and watch the tape. And Ruffy's kicked it wide, what they call a long diagonal. Um, and um, Beveridge says, um, or if Marcus executed his technique properly, he was always going to get the ball. Um, <laughs> and But that's, I mean, that's seriously, that's... That's what he expects. That's what he mm. thinks. That's how he sees the game. And, um, you know, if you're that good and you get that opportunity, you should do it. That's that's how he sees it. So he he does have incredibly high expectations of his players. Mm. Yeah. And so you, when you're writing about moments and you're writing about, say, Liam Pickett, yeah. my favourite um, <laughs> line in the book was, Liam Pickett is the silent man who makes the concrete mouth of the MCG bellow his name on grand final day. Yeah. When you're writing these moments and you're writing about something like that, and you write something like that on your computer, does it just happen? Or yeah. is there, what's the thought? Or do you come up with them in the shower? What's, no, the, what's no. the deal? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, uh, it's all about um, writing generally for me is just about getting in a flow of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <clears throat> like if I'm, doesn't matter whether the subject's football or not football, for me, you come, you know, if I meet you, I'm writing on you, I come home. I meditate on you and I just go through all the things which you've said or which I've experienced while I'm in your company and I'm just waiting for one that's got energy and when the one that's got energy comes I go with it and once I start I don't stop I don't stop for fear I don't stop for doubt I say to myself I'll deal with them later and so once I get into the flow I just it's all about trying to find the flow and then once I find it, going with it and not stopping till it's over. And when you're sat with someone, what do you look for? When, when you're I'm inter- watching. When you're like sat with a player and you're interviewing them, what specific things are you trying to observe? And also, are you writing things down or yeah. are you just yeah. mental noting? No, I, I, I do write things down. But um, I often think when you uh, interview someone in journalism, and it doesn't matter whether it's football or not, um, but, but journalism to me is always about going beyond your preconception. So every time you go to meet someone and interview them, you do have a preconception and you do have some sort of vague, rough plan. But it's about being aware that the most interesting thing might not be the thing you're looking for or the one that's mm-hmm. ahead of you, but something that's off to the side. And it's, it's, it's having the awareness. It's like at the end of the day, I always believed... That um, that the person the person you have to interest when you write is yourself, because if you don't interest yourself, uh, you're cheating. Um, you're cheating your reader because if if you're not if you're boring yourself, then you're just coming up with some some pattern. I, I once wrote a sports column at the Age, and there was this old sub editor. <clears throat> he, he saw me in the office. He called me over. He said, "Flanagan." That was the weirdest fucking sports column I've ever read. Uh, but I read it to the end. 
And I said to him, I make you one promise, I will never bore myself. And um, that's how I've tried to live it. So, I mean, I, I, I write about footy the way I do because it excites me. Um, James Hurt said to me once when he was playing that when the game stopped exciting him like it did as a kid, he'd stop playing it. Well, when I played it as a kid in Burnie, growing up in northwest coast of Tasmania, the schoolboy footy in Burnie was phenomenally good. There were five or six kids that went on to play VFL or AFL. And so I was out on this field with these kids, you know, in a school where I was otherwise bored and unhappy. The most interesting thing by 100 miles was being out on the field with these kids, watching the things they could do, especially the skill and daring. And that's why I've always sat on the fence when I go to AFL games. I never sit in the press box. Uh, but now television's getting so good uh, at, at getting into games and getting up to them um, that I, I tend to watch a lot of them on TV. Mm. <coughs> and do you find that easy of watching on TV from the perspective of actually grasping 100% what's going on and who's where? Sometimes uh, in a game when there's 44 players on the field, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty easy to get lost. <coughs> For me to really enjoy a game of football, I have to feel the pace of the game and I have to feel the power of the game. I, that's what creates my awareness of the skill and daring. And... Like in the press box, you're several store floors up at the MCG. What you see is patterns. But the patterns don't interest me nearly as much as as the moments of great play. That's what I love. That's what mm. really thrills me. And I think Conrad said something really similar when we spoke to him about observing Richmond. From the press box, you also don't get the reaction to those moments, and that takes away from your overall experience and the quality of the writing. Well, and I mean... Yeah, I, I, when I first came to Melbourne, this is 1985, I couldn't believe it because I'd go to games, go and watch games, and um, and afterwards <clears throat> you'd watch these games, some of which were great games, and uh, afterwards you'd um, you'd go with the other journalists for these press conferences where they'd try and trick the coach into saying something, and that would be their story. That would be their story. They never wrote about the games. And I never understood that. To me, it was all about the games. And, um, and and unless the coaches said something interesting, which they rarely did, I didn't worry about including what, what they were on about. Um, but, but that, I suppose, in my time as a sports writer, probably the biggest change is that when I started, the whole thing about being a sports writer was that <clears throat> you got privileged access to events... <coughs> that ordinary people couldn't get into and the art was to convey the excitement and the special magic of the occasion that's what the art of it was mm. well now television does that better and better and better and sports writing becomes more and more peripheral but one of the things about this book that was good for me was that it gave me the chance to paint a great grand final I wanted to do that you know I love that's what you know if you if you can't get excited about the game and if you can't convey the excitement of the game then you're, you're in the wrong place. Mm. And the little anecdotes you talk about writing that great grand final, <coughs> like Tom Libertore arriving <laughs> like a ridiculous amount early and then someone telling him, oh, you look like Tom Libertore. And the other one is Tom Libertore forgetting his boots. <laughs> so when you're going through all that, how does that stuff come up? Is it just good questioning on your, on your part? He's a fascinating character and um, he's interested in writing. And um, <clears throat> so... And, and I'd had a relationship with his dad from the time of the 93 book. So we had, <clears throat> we had, quite, we had a few avenues uh, to, to go down. And, like he's got uh, a Hunter S. Thompson quote tattooed on his arm, uh, 
when the going gets weird, the weird get pro. Uh, so that we had lots of lots of things, lots of ways in. And then his view is so idiosyncratic of the game. Like he's he is one of the game's dissidents. He 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 has completely his own take on the game. Um, you know when when you hear um, so much commentary, you know, on footy is is cliched and. There's nothing cliched about any of his thoughts or any of his behaviour. He's he's different, and um, and uh, so he was he was pretty easy. He was pretty easy in that sense that he everything he said was of interest to me. Everything, yeah. Uh, but do I try and trap you know lead people in? I just try and go with the energy. I just try and go with you know. I just I just try and you know if we're talking and. And I feel something's of interest. Then I try and go down, go down that path. But I don't pre-plan. I, I mean, I, if I'm going to interview you, I would, I would read what it, you know, what evidence is available on you, and um, read what I can. Like this book I'm writing now. I'm just writing about a, a South Sudanese child soldier who I met, and I've just read his book. Um, so yeah, I read the book and then. And then meet him, and then try and take the conversation wherever it goes. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't overly plan. Sounds of-